0: Welcome, travelers. I'm Josh.
1: I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. This is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your humble guides along the journey to RPG adventures.
2: We are all D&D role players and storytellers at heart. It's where we started out, and it's where we find ourselves most at home. So here in our main podcast episodes, we discuss the core rules, how to use them as written, and how to homebrew your own content to get the most out of your story. Because detailed settings, heroic characters... Vibrant NPCs and a focus on story over rules is what makes a campaign legendary.
0: Here's a message from friends of the show.
3: In a world headed for disaster, five strangers with mysterious pasts are thrown together by the winds of fate to try to stop the unseen forces that threaten to destroy their world. Join Creval, a dragonborn with no memory and no past, who is the first of the barbarians of the mountains to be seen in a thousand years. Cotter, a penniless paladin, running from something or someone in his past. No one, the only tiefling monk the kingdom has ever seen, who has been expelled from his monastery for reasons he has not revealed. Adry, his monastic companion who hides some deep dark secret she cannot reveal. And Arlen, once a simple farmer, until some mysterious event manifested sorcerous powers in him. They must travel the length and breadth of the kingdom of Ferro, searching for the disparate clues that will help them unravel the mystery of the failing of their land, while trying to hold together the unraveling threads of society's weave threatening to come apart at any moment. They will have to battle nature, plague, politics, and even the forces of the underworld, as they attempt to discover and defeat whoever, or whatever, is attempting to poison their world and throw it into chaos. Relic of the Past is a novel-length story told via a clean, custom, 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons game. Find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are found, and at poolmedia.podbean.com.
0: Welcome, everybody, to tonight's episode. I am once again joined on a delightful Wednesday evening, which is a little unusual for us tonight, but by my two illustrious cohorts, Lunica and Glenn. Good evening, gentlemen. How are we doing tonight?
1: I'm doing excellent. I'm ready to jump in. This is a topic we've tossed around, talked about, teased for many, many, many months and I'm really anxious to kind of dig in and really talk about the techniques in some detail and provide some methods for storytellers yeah. and players alike to interact with the prospect.
0: Yeah. I love that we haven't even said what the show is about tonight yet, and you're already saying how we're how we're going to use it. It's fantastic. It's like a it's a that's a preview,
4: ladies and gentlemen. I love that. Yeah. So <laughs> Mr. Myers, how about you this evening? You know, it's been uh A pretty actually awesome frickin' day, so glad to be here. This should be a good time.
0: Yeah, we're going to talk about a topic which, if you have been listening to, particularly the Patreon actual play, but in a variety of other kind of capacities here, it's a topic on of it's something that we've touched on a lot over the last few months, both in our episodes, we've made allusions to it, and in the actual play episodes that we've been recording. But tonight we're going to be talking about collaborative world building. We're going to we're going to have a lot of kind of actionable intel about how to. For you know, for storytellers out there, how to bring collaborative world building into your game? There are a variety of ways that you can go ahead and do that. It it is a it is a an, an onion of a topic. It really is because you can. There are ways that you can go all in and use a, a campaign style that is highly collaborative world world built or or collaborative with your with your players and there's also ways that you can introduce it very lightly so that you almost can't even tell that it's there. I think most of the storytellers out there are going to hear some of these tips and and tricks and say to themselves, "Oh, I'm already doing that" without realizing that it fits under the umbrella of uh, of collaborative role play. And the other thing that'll be nice is that I know that when we first started, in particular with the Patreon actual play, and when I was running that with a, with my very, very collaborative style, I know Anika and Glenn, both of you said that that was something new, that you hadn't done a lot of that before. I'm, I'm really going to be interested to hear sort of from a player point of view, how to roll with it. Because it is definitely, and Glenn kind of touched on this a, l- a little bit, not recently, but in the past we've t- touched on this about how, you know, it can sometimes be a little intimidating for a player if if they're not used to kind of taking the reins of a game to all of a sudden be thrust into oh crap i now need to go i'm coming up with things now what if i get it wrong so right. tell us a little bit about your experience from the from the player side let's let's start there tonight and kind of i don't know how how did how did you feel about it how did you feel it was managed and how do you how do you sort of uh, prepare yourself for for diving into kind of that that sort of gameplay
4: Okay. Most of the time that I've been playing and most of the games that I've played in that I've run prior to, I'd say the last year or so, run, I've really been getting exposed to a lot of collaborative world building. There's always been some, you know, and it was done kind of like we were set, you were saying a minute ago where it was kind of being worked in and people didn't completely realize, you know, like when you're blending in pieces of backgrounds and things to help. Flesh out the world, the party, and the and the area. You're doing some collaborative world building already. But this year, between the candle keep game, where from the player's perspective, I mean, I was a little flat footed. I'd been slightly prepared by a game of Spire that I play with one of our Patreons, which does and and she does a lot of collaborative whole situational scenes. So it had a little bit a little bit of. uh I had my teeth cut a little bit on that first before I hit yours, but for anybody who hasn't seen or listened to that first Candle Keep, the way that he brought us all together was he had each person while we were on this carriage ride going from point A to point B and this wasn't even specifically in the module beyond the fact that the carriage is important. And he had He had a roll table and each one of us rolled a die and whatever it landed on on the roll table, we had to come up with something based on the result that Josh had written down and it was kind of awesome i mean it was a whole lot of fun we'd already kind of gone a little bit collaborative with the tea party all on our very own before that even happened but when the storyteller turns to you and says some form of major calamity or natural natural disaster happens right outside of the carriage what do you see and and you're like yeah for a second but i i rose to the challenge and i love it yeah Um, but you're not wrong there are players who who find that very intimidating and not just to the point of they'll get used to it but like don't put me on the spot like that yeah, yeah, you know, so you got to know your players a little bit, but again, you know, you know your players. Throw it out to them; it's it can be a blast, and you never know which way the game's going to go. Yeah, later in the second candle keep, since we're talking about the players' perspective and tooting Josh's horn, we're all sitting around a campfire. <laughs> this is one of my favorites. Yeah, and uh, again, he's got his table and he's having us roll and say something that we saw or that had to do with the campfire. I think he makes a separate table for different.
0: Yeah, I have um, I have a bunch of different ones. Yeah, we'll, and we'll get into that in a minute, but yeah.
4: So one of them was, you know, Campfire Story was from one person, and they told a story of a something that was a horror story.
0: It was Kess that was telling a story about werewolves.
4: Yeah. And then uh, later, Sprocket, my character, got, you see something in the darkness – you know what is it so sprocket decides it's a were bear hiding behind somebody <laughs> uh, but it turns out it was wear rats because that's actually what was written yeah. in the module yeah. so it was hysterical that it just happens to play out yeah. that way but it was it was so hot
0: if, if i can glom onto that for just a second that is honestly uh and we may even uh, i may even drop that a clip from that into this episode because really that is sort of the pinnacle of starting a collaborative world building role play session or section of a game right and really as the storyteller having no idea what you're going to come up with right and having it mesh exactly where I wanted the game to go or where the game was going to go. Not even where I wanted it because we were still firmly into running the Candlekeep Mysteries at the time. And Mm -hmm. so I knew that there was going to be this attack from these were-rats. I had no idea how we were going to get there. I just figured that, you know, you guys would have your stories and then they would attack and everything would be great. But the way that the narrative thread Wove its way, you know, from Kess telling the story to then Sprocket getting scared of the ghost story, and 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 uh, Simeon being on the fence post and not really, not really, you know, thinking that Sprocket's just being Sprocket and he's scared, you know, that kind of thing. The way that it all wove together—that's exactly what you want from a from a Clatter of session.
4: Since we're on Candlekeep, and you said Simeon, I have to give Lee side props on this. But just so you're aware, Lee, when Trish and I go hiking, which we do all the time, when we can't decide which way to go, we go left, and we call it the Simeon Method. like actively on the trail in the woods we say this out loud
1: Well, excellent we're gonna give uh thanks to marty and dc comics for that one because i stole that from a um comic book that featured dick grayson and wally west nightwing and flash and their particular little side adventure that they did it was like a one shot and marty is a huge wally west fan and i'm a huge dick grayson fan And our friendship is really built very closely along those lines. And we we loved that scene. Like, we both read it kind of separately, and we both mentioned the fact that that was, like, our favorite scene in the book. And that's where that method was born.
4: Other games that I've gotten into have featured it pretty heavily as well. It hasn't come out yet. I don't think it won't have come out yet by this point. It hasn't come out yet, but we... (laughs) Did some work with Against the Dark Master, which we've been talking about off and on since it came in during our questions from the audience. was whether or not we would ever cover other games and whether or not we would consider covering Against the Dark Master. And we have been. We've met with them. We did an actual play with them. And in that actual play, it's built right into the game. And in part of your session zero, you invent the dark master and, you know, the type of minions you're fighting and you work on all of that together, like right there at the beginning of the game and you kind of set up your, your bad guy. And that's really groovy too. So I've been really excited by my exposure to it so far. And I'm really looking forward to starting to work it more into my games as a DM. I touched on it a little bit, but never worked on it actively the way that you do.
0: So, I'd love to say that I came up with this idea all on my own, but I I stole it liberally from a variety of sources. And you mentioned Against the Dark Master. I love the way that the world begins with that sort of collaborative – like. We're gonna design our game world together and then we're gonna lay a plot on top of that. But but that the actual construction of the world and the fleshing out of what the big bad is and all that sort of stuff, that's gonna be exceptionally collaborative. We're all gonna come that together. We're all gonna to come together to go ahead and do that, you know. So that's sort of structural right from the get-go. And you know, other systems that have things like that, you know, like Fate is another system that does a lot like that. What I've been doing with Keep is probably closer to like what they do with Powered by the Apocalypse where, like, so we see that when we've talked about the real thing, actual play that'll be coming out in February. The The collaborative world building is very narrative, right? It's like as your character learns things, the things that your character is learning are driven by you, the player, as opposed to the storyteller kind of telling you where they are. And so, it sounds like the when we were talking kind of in pre-show, the, the coll- collaborative building that you do with your players sounds closer to kind of the structural one that we did with against the dark master where it's kind of from the beginning i know you said that you do some kind of throughout the game and stuff like that too but talk a little bit about your process how do you introduce it
1: i will start with the given that i've never called it collaborative world building and since we started this podcast and you've gone into detail about it i played in games at your table largely for the first time since we started this podcast, where that became a thing. Most of what I've done was borrow techniques from World of Darkness in that players kind of make things up. Like, you make up your character, you have a general background, which is decided between you and the storyteller, or if you're handed a character. But most of the details you, as a player, get to decide. So I've really just borrowed those techniques and put them at a, uh, in a tabletop setting. So like when it comes to backgrounds, the players are if I'm doing a 5 v game, they're going to pick a 5 v background. And the example I have that comes to mind is one that was in my one of my ongoing games and a player wanted to use a background that's in D&D Beyond for us. I believe it's a homebrew one or some Some weird alternate thing. It's not in one of the official books, but it's called the criminal scion. Basically, it's like you're going to be part of a thieves guild, but you're like the child of like the leadership of this criminal organization. I would liken it to Michael Corleone in the early parts of Godfather 1. You're the child of the mobster, right? And you have these benefits. You can either be a guy who's in the family and actively pursuing family business you can be the black sheep who's out of the family, maybe not working against, but certainly not working towards the family goals. And there are different things that come up mechanically with that background. I had a player who wanted that, like of all the things, like she chose that. She was playing a character who happens to be ma- uh, male gendered, But the, the idea was that was very cool to her. Now, that was not a... Thieves Guild that I had built for the game. She was coming into the game in the second tier that we were playing. So I said, if that's what you want, that's what you're going to get. So I said, you're not going to be where the game started, but we are headed to this new area. So it was fresh territory. So I put this more traditional Thieves Guild, very different than what I had been dealing with previously, there. They were the guild power in that town. And I set this up and then she's playing a tabaxi. So I'm like, I'm going to have this run by tabaxi. And the name of the organization was the cat's paw. And they <laughs> nice. basically were the criminal underbelly. They were the power. And, and as we built out this concept, she's like, well, I don't want to be against the family. I want to follow the rules, know all the secret handshakes, but I want to have a brother who's threatened by me who's supposed to be the heir apparent, like her older brother. And she came up with all of that. Like I didn't. And I'm like, Ooh, this is narratively juicy. This is really good stuff. So then I build that in. And when we come there, when we, whenever she interacts with them, I add a new layer and it's all informed by things that she wanted to do. She's like, well, I wanted to also be a sailor. She's playing a swashbuckler. uh, rogue and i'm like okay so she does all these things it's a poor town and it they have some influence on the docks all these things were basically came from this player building this background and that's kind of what i do player gives me a background i work it into the fabric of the world and i can to glenn's point to our point about sometimes this stuff can be daunting for newer players or players who aren't Mm -hmm. comfortable with this I build it out to the level that the player is comfortable. Like I'll ask the questions, you know, what do you think? What do you like? Do you want to be this involved? Do you want to be that involved? Like how much of this do you want to come into the game? And it lets me know how much to play up on it. You know, I've got some players who just want stuff like that to be just what it is in 5e. Straight up background, thorius and mechanics. If that's what you want, that's what you get. But if you're really into the story, I'm going to give you that. I want to also call out one thing, the player in question. This young person is 17 years old, and when she first came up with these concepts, she was 15 at the time. This is a young person who's developing these deep story ideas, and it's one of the things I love about that game. I have several young people, three, te- three teenagers actually are part of that game, and it's amazing the kind of background that they bring to the events.
0: Nice. That's the thing that I love most about about having a collaborative storytelling style, right? It's a great tool to highlight players who want to emphasize the role-playing tier of our game, right? Regardless of what game you're playing, regardless of what system you're playing or anything like that. If you've got players that want to to want to hit the role playing tier more, taking the stuff that they give you when they write up their character and weaving it into the fabric of your game is really, really the it, it's a great way to, to to focus on that and to highlight that highlight what they're putting into the characters. You know, I, mm-hmm. I I kind of I've likened it before to to storytelling stock options by giving up part of the game or the, the creation of the game to your players, you're telling your players that you're investing in them a little bit, right? That you are, that you really want it, that you want to invite them into the table, not just to sit at it, right? You actually want them to be part of the entire thing. If they want to role play more and if they want to focus on that, or if they, even if they don't know that they want to, if, they, if they've never done that before, giving them those chops, but it's going to make the game better for them. It's going to bring them in more. It's going to immerse them more if they feel like the thing that they spent a lot of time on is woven into the storyline. You know, it's why rather than kind of how I do like individual sessions when I'm starting a game for the first time, the first thing that I want is I want to know who the characters are that are coming in. Like I, I might have some general plot ideas about kind of what what's the story that I want to tell or anything like of everything like that, but the specifics are not nailed down until I know the characters that are there, and that is that's a really important part of my process is making sure that the players and the characters that they create have their individual representation. When I was researching for the show here, there's a a quote that I saw that really sums up kind of how I feel about it. And it's, you know, the storyteller's job at the table is not to show the players that they're special, creative or clever. The job of the storyteller is to show the players that they're special and that they're creative and that they're clever. You know, it flips the script a little bit. I'm not, I'm not, the only one that's supposed to be creative at the table it's supposed to be it's supposed to be interactive
4: and that's one of the things that it can really do is take some of the pressure for having to create everything off of the storyteller it can create an ongoing scene in the game that the storyteller didn't have to come up with doesn't have to specifically run um it it, and it'll create more buy-in from your players too i think that as a player Playing in a game that it, with a storyteller who worked as hard as you do for collaborative world building, I feel like that would make my game less likely to implode because we've all had that happen. You get you get you yeah. get a good game going, it makes it you know a couple of levels, maybe you make it through a tier, and then something happens and it just peters out. But when you yeah. if you can keep everybody engaged and excited like that, it can help keep it going.
1: Yep, for sure. Well, nothing for nothing. the 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 goal of the storyteller should be immersion. You want yep. people to feel active and participatory in your campaign world. And the easiest way for them to do that is if they built part of your campaign world, because now it's not your baby, it's your collective group's baby. It is everybody has a piece. So that particular player, every time they're in this town or near this town, their buy-in if i want to have a MacGuffin, because i'm having a hard time figuring out how to get people to buy in have the threat be that person's town that's where her brother is her father is her organization that's where she plans the character he plans to retire that buy-in is built in and it's there because the player put it there we've got another character who has taken over an area become got begotten a lordship has built a keep has people that are actively pursuing goals there outside of the adventure stuff. Down the road, I want to have him, that player involved, It's involve his area. You know, when the group says things are going bad and we don't have enough people to do this, this player's like, I'll have my army march. And his army marches, and now the player characters can focus on the adventure goal because the periphery damage is mitigated because now this other thing comes in, which goes to a point I planned on making later, but I'll make it here. Whatever you're doing for collaborative world, world building, make sure you as a storyteller provide those in game and tangible rewards. And I don't mean like you get a magic item, but I mean, make the bonus. If you had your town yeah. about to be raised, And you've got a player who built up this relationship through collaborative world building with the town guard and they have better morale or whatever. Make sure you display that. You got to make sure that is seen in the narrative, in the actual activities. Give them some kind of mechanical benefit. Hey, the guards that you were friends with, they all get uh, advantage on morale checks because they're your guys. They're your people.
0: So it, it's funny, you I know, and again this this sort of touches on when we talked about the the magic items episode about kind of how we integrate magic items into our games and everything like that. I have absolutely used collaborative world building to introduce magic items into the game previously, and I've done it in a couple of different ways. Sometimes it's as simple, you know, because I also tend to use extraordinary success and extraordinary failure. So yeah. ones and twenties always have some other meaning beyond kind of do I succeed on the check they. Always, 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 every single time. Capital A, always, 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 always.
4: Right, always, always,
0: and always, always. Right, and so that include that includes when I'm having Urology D twenty for collaborative world building. If there have been times, and we've seen this in Candlekeep, where you know. Characters will roll a natural one on their collaborative world building role, and their prompt is normally like, hey, as you're setting up camp, you find a ring in the dirt. Now, finding a ring when you roll a one is generally different than finding a ring when you roll a 20. And so that's one way that I kind of introduce magical items in that way. You know, Because I mean, I also have mad love for cursed items, right? Let's be honest. So rolling a one and finding the ring that talks to you, or in my other session, the we were at a campsite, and the a, a dwarf character found found a basically a rusty knife when he was setting up camp. And the rusty knife is a spoiler it's a it's a cursed weapon that he is convinced is this relic weapon of dwarven kind like of the of, of history and it's really it's like a rusty knife i mean he's getting tetanus more than anything else by by wielding it but he doesn't want to let it go he's convinced that it's a relic weapon now the rest of the party's like crap the dwarf is convinced that this weapon is special we don't really know enough about dwarven weaponry to know if he's right But he's convinced that it is and he won't put it down. So now they're they're starting to put together that whether or not the knife is actually good or not. Right. And so it, it, that's the one thing is that, you know, we'll probably have a whole episode about critical success and critical failures anyway, but you know, Knowing, you know, the player knows that they rolled a one, but the character can't know that they rolled a one in that kind of situation, right? So that's one way that I've definitely introduced magic weapons before is kind of as a as a reward or a penalty for a one or a twenty. But the other thing that I have collaborative world building stuff for is when I want to introduce a magic item, allowing players to roll about how their character interacts with that item. What is it you now, how do they find it? Why do they find it? That kind of thing. There's there's these are sometimes these are sometimes tables that have a little bit more nuance to them and and the options have to be like more more specific just in general. They can't be quite so open because you still are like hey, you find a knife leaning against the wall or buried in a stone, you know, how you find a ring buried in a wall, how did it get there? You know, those sorts of things. So sometimes they, they have a little bit more nuance to them, but I I, I absolutely have used collaborative worldbuilding to go ahead and introduce things like that. In- introduce MacGuffins into the game,
1: you know, before. While we're talking about that, I was going to mention a few very subtle things that I will do that are collaborative <clears throat> world building in scope that I've been doing my entire time but I probably never titled as such basically during combat it's allowing players to feel narratively strong enough to describe how they dispatch an enemy yeah you know, I don't do it all the time there's some there's a, there's a sweet spot between narrating every single hit and giving it that that really strong flourish I almost always will give, uh, specific narration and direction for uh, a natural 20 and a natural one. You know, yep. you did this, you flourished great. Or, you know, a 15 yep. or a five is a miss, but a 20 and a one is a hit or abject failure in some fashion. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, You know, that type of thing is something I do in combat. And while I will marry a lot of them, and I certainly will do so for the players that I have a sense of, don't feel comfortable doing that, but for the players that are all in, I will very easily, hey, you hit, that that's a critical hit, or you just, end of this guy, describe yeah. it. And I'll i will yeah. throw them the the nod so they can do that. I think that that works really well. It does fall into know your players, so they have the ability to kind of really get into that description, describing spells. I think, yeah. Glenn, in your games, you have great descriptions for all of your NPCs, and is very inspiring as a player who's played a spellcaster in, in a few of your games to then follow up and then come up with my own description and flavor codes for those spells. It's something I like to yeah. do when I play spellcasters. I don't play a lot of them, but when I play one, it's usually because I came up with a neat way to flavor spells and I want to, I want to test that out. So, you know, you know, I think that that's something that really is very helpful is just giving players that room to breathe and feel like they can describe how their spell looks. Yeah.
4: And honestly, from that perspective, in terms of spells, D&D has started to build it in a little bit when you look at the artificer as an example, because as an artificer, you are supposed to come up specifically with how you cast your spells, because you don't do it in the normal fashion. And I actually had a lot of fun making Sprocket designing how he cast firebolt and although i changed it with josh's permission to an electric bolt just by changing yep. the, uh, the damage type because that worked better for what i was going with and that was a whole lot of fun in and of itself just coming up with creative steampunky semi-mechanical semi-magical yep. ways to have these spell effects go off so it is coming to D 2
0: yeah. Tasha's allows that now as, as as it used to always be something that we had to homebrew, right? But now Tasha's kind of gives us the freedom to, to start bringing more of that stuff in. And so I'm glad that – I was glad that you made that change because like I, uh, the – Sprocket's character kind of necessitated more of like a steampunky kind of, kind of electrical based. And so I was, I was really glad that, that you pulled that out. And I loved the way that you integrated it, like kind of using the same spells, really just changing the damage type. You're not changing anything else other than the damage type and the look of it and how it's cast and everything like that. And so that's, that's so much fun to kind of riff off of too when we're running combat and everything like that. You know, Luminika, you were talking about how, you know how to use it in combat, and and I swear you're you're reading my notes again. But one of the things that I have started doing describe how you how you how you kill your foe. That's a very common one, right? And again, that's one of the things that, like, I'm not sure that people would think, oh, they're doing collaborative building by doing that. It's like, well, no, you're bringing in people, you know, you're bringing the players into the actual narrative flow of the story, not just having them roll the dice and, and react to it. One of the things that I have started doing occasionally in combat or in other situations, too, but mostly in combat when players roll a natural 20, is not just allowing them the critical damage, but also kind of giving them, again, the the very narrative strong, hey, you get a premonition about what your foe is going to do next turn. What is it? And allowing them to dictate the next turn for the foe that they're facing. On a natural 20, that is an incredibly powerful benefit, Um so it has not just kind of like a really strong mechanical benefit for rolling a 20, but it's also hugely narratively strong because, <laughs> again, now the players are like, oh, I get this I get this snapshot, you know, and, and trying to stay, and stay, staying true to that can really, again, kind of help the, can, can, can be a, a narrative boon. You know, it's not something you want to use all the time because, again, that's one of those things that's like very much, it's very much like salt. You don't want to do that all the time because then, you know, not that natural twenties happen all the time, but it's one of those things that you're using it occasionally or with the same character, that kind of thing, like it, with a particular character
1: as a story point. That's pretty. That's pretty hot. As, like if you're dealing with a battle master or somebody who's specifically yeah. like highly combat yep. in nature, wonderful. Somebody if you're with do somebody a monk with, with psionic abilities. Like oh yeah, like a monk or somebody with psionic abilities. That's pretty hot. You know, it is narrative and letting players dictate or describe a combat action or the way they do a flourish or move or whatever does a little bit more than just give them an add-on to the game. It actually helps set that tone. And as a storyteller, I pay very close attention to the tone that my players are bringing to the game or to the combat or to the encounter, because if they're bringing gritty humor, die hard, you can have that gritty fierceness, gladiator you could have that gritty realism saving private ryan all gritty actually describes all three quite well but there's very significant differences between all three of those films sure and listening to how your players narrate their actions tells you as a storyteller I may have come into this with this thought, like I'm doing the greatest thing uh, that's ever occurred. This is the greatest war story in the history of man. But if they're sitting here doing Monty Python and they're talking to the guy at the top of the tower or whatever, and he's dropping pigs on them or something like that, you know, obviously I need to say, do I need to change my tone? Do I need to bring them into my tone? It really gives me some some feel for what I want to do with this game and I think it becomes a really a better way to run to manage the game did you know you could have been
0: listening to this episode two days ago that's right because early access to our episodes is only one of the benefits that we offer to our patreon subscribers you can get early access to every show exclusive content and the opportunity to throw dice with your favorite hosts every month Right now, we're running a membership drive through the end of November for our first anniversary. If we reach 20 subscribers by that date, we will start a regular live show. And when we get to 25 subscribers, we're going to open our tables for a second Patreon-exclusive game. So if the actual play episodes aren't your thing, you can still join your hosts on the download. For more details, go check www.patreon.com slash ttjourneys, where you can subscribe for as little as $1 a month, and thank you for enjoying the show. So One thing that I do want to do, and I I guess I kind of wanted to do this about 30 minutes ago, but might as well do it now more than anything else. One thing, we've talked about how we collaboratively world build and how we introduce it to our game, but I do want to go ahead and make sure that everybody out there listening actually knows what the heck it is that we're talking about when we say collaborative world building, because it's very easy just to go ahead and say, well, you know, collaborative world building, it's got two words. You're talking about building your world collaboratively with your, (laughs) exactly. Yeah. With, with your players. From my perspective as a storyteller, What collaborative world building really encompasses is my desire. And I I said this earlier, my desire to not just have players at my table, but have my, have players in my game. I want them in the game world and I want them to go ahead and feel some sense of, of ownership or some sense of control is the wrong word, but it's, I want them to have some sense of ownership or some sort of input to the running of the game. And. One thing that I want to be kind of upfront about for storytellers out there is that what that means in its, especially the way that I do it, where it's a big part of what I do, it absolutely means that I, as the storyteller, do have to cede some control of my game world to my players. We talked about how it can be intimidating from a player point of view to go ahead and be put on the spot and say, "Hey, you know, we're we're doing the thing. I need you to go ahead and all of a sudden come up with something." Right? It can be intimidating to the players. Absolutely. It can, it can be intimidating to the storyteller if there are specific things that you want to get done or specific things that you want to say or specific things that you want to reveal. You know, you've got to make sure that you kind of trot out. That pony at the right time, right? Because, you know, it's entirely possible that, you know, because you never know what your players are going to say. Trust me. I mean, like, we, we joked about this on when Lou and Winnicke and I talked about kind of the first three episodes of Candle Keep a couple of weeks ago, right? About how we, and Glenn, you, you were part of these discussions. We never went into that actual play with the intention of designing a campaign. Nope. Right. We absolutely are, our, our, we're, we're going to run through the Candle Keep missions. It'll be fantastic. It's just going to be independent games. They'll be great. And, Starting off that game with a collaborative world building session like that was fantastic because it got all of you guys engaged, it got all of you guys involved and everything like that. And then thirty minutes into our first episode, we were in a campaign because all of a sudden there was this village and it was on fire and there was a guy that needed help and there was all this all this stuff started happening and it's like, well, now we're in a campaign. That's definitely the side effect of, of of a collaborative world building is that it's designed to go ahead and get players caring about all the stuff that's happening kind of away from uh, the stuff that's happening directly at the table, right? So to get them in, get them caring about what's happening off in the distance, to get them caring about that tree over there, to get them caring about the animal that they see in the underbrush, that kind of thing. I'm not going to call it a downside because it's fantastic, but the side effect is that now they care about that stuff. And so like, you know, two games later, they're going to be like, hey, that village over there that was on fire, what's going on with that? Why, you know, why, what, what, what do we need to do about that? boom, now we're in a campaign. So, you know, that's definitely, that's one thing that I think that storytellers need to be aware of, that that's what's going to happen. And so (laughs) if you don't want the game to go that direction, that's not the moment in your game to go ahead and try out collaborative world building. And again, you know, as in other things, we've noticed that the, the three of us kind of do it in different ways too.
1: You're not wrong. You have to know when to do it, which is why like I have tended to do so in session zero, building the characters. And then the other time I will tend to do this collaborative world building thing is in between tiers. That's when I drop large amounts of downtime. So my longest ongoing 5e campaign, I actually did a, sesh, uh, a tier zero kind of thing where they did five levels uh, before they were level one kind of thing. And then in between that and, and tier one, five years passed. And I yeah. went to each player separately and said, in the world that I have that you that has unfolded before you, I basically, they had toured a portion of the kingdom. Where do you want your character to spend their next five years? And then each of the players picked that spot. And then I said, What do you wish to do while you're there? The player characters chose what they wanted their character to do. I said, This is why you're training to get your character class. They then did that. I rewarded them by giving them the mechanical benefits of a second background to reflect what they said they were going to do in that community. I rewarded each of them by giving them a contact in that location. So if the game ever came back to that location, they had a spot. Uh, in the case of two of the player characters, they actually had uh, an apartment that they went to one of them became a member of a guild so he was there and and you know he had this this guild connection there the other one had connections to a great library when he was in oh. his particular area everybody had these connections one of the player characters stayed in the home base area so further cemented his relationship with their family and with neighbors and friends there everybody did this thing and they all have these extra benefits that came from doing that. When they finished tier one and they were going into tier two, I did another large drop. I think it was a, a year and a half that time. They didn't get a second background, but again, depending on what they said they were going to do, I then had them roll an appropriate check to see if they improved their relations with that contact or picked up a new contact or whatever resources they might have. And so they got to tell me what was happening. I said. Here's what's happening in your town. What do you wish to do to impact it? And then I changed that based on what they were doing. So there were roles, there were role play, there were ideas that they got to filter into the world. And those became some of the things that became the themes of the next tier of play. You have to know when you're going to do it. You know, I wanted the world to change based on what the player characters were doing and experiencing. So that's when I gave them the widest canvas for which to paint the world with. we, We talked a lot about
0: kind of like how to use it and some techniques and stuff like that. We're going to go ahead and go a little bit even further than that. The one thing that I'm working on at the moment that we're recording this and, and should be done by the time this episode airs is I've got all these role tables that I've been building. I am going to be putting them up in, I guess I'm calling it a pamphlet. It's probably going to be, because there's about 12 or 13 of them at this point. So I'm going to be putting it into, I guess, a pamphlet is what I'm going to call it up on DMs Guild. There'll be the link for that down in the show notes. Please download it, play with it, have fun, enjoy that. But what it's basically going to be is a bunch of D20 based roll tables and sp- Some accompanying magic items that go along with the roll tables, things that I've introduced in that process. Uh, That's thing one, is that, uh, you know, please go check that out. Check the the show notes down below and go check out that, that tool. Some other things that I wanted to kind of point you at in terms of how to... How to develop either your own kind of collaborative world building system or at least where to go to read up on how it's done in other systems so you can go ahead and find what resonates for you and for your table. One other game that I wanted to mention was the game The Burning Wheel, which is a really, really thick but really, really well written campaign setting. It uses a a very kind of integral campaign building mechanic that's very similar to Against the Dark Master, where the collaborative world building is kind of structural, right? It starts right from the very beginning. It's session zero type stuff is all about building this world in a very collaborative manner. So uh, definitely a role-playing game that you should check out. And then another one, and this is the, it, the game Kingdom, which is put out by Lame Mage Games. Now Lame Mage Games has put out a bunch of different games that that have a lot of collaborative role-playing type elements to them they are largely no gm type games and so they're they very much are kind of like a narrative flow game anyway where it's like you've just got players we're just telling a story together so they're kind of they're kind of built on that but like they put another one called microscope which has a lot of things but the reason why i wanted to talk about kingdom specifically is that it's kind of the one that has the most specific set of rules where there is in any particular situation you are dealing with stories come to a crossroads so some sort of decision has to be made right each player has a particular perspective that influences that particular decision and then there are the system refers to as touchstones so could be like an important event that causes the decision to be made or a particular npc that's driving the decision or something like that and so it's kind of got more concrete there are these three things that factor into why the decision is being made and what the decision is for your players so it's just something else to go ahead and and check out. And then, lastly, the lesson last that I wanted to go ahead and point out was if you go to collaborativeworldbuilding.com, you will find the <laughs> fantastic book, which has been well loved and dog eared on my bookcase Collaborative Worldbuilding for Writers and Gamers. So I was going to um, mention the
4: book because I found yeah, it. Yeah, which is, a, it's a, it's a,
0: if you haven't read it, it's a fan, absolutely fantastic book. The, the gentleman's a, a college professor that uses role playing games to go ahead and teach creative writing, and it's absolutely fabulous. And what's great about the website is that not only can you get his book there but also he has a bunch of free to print world building decks that you can download and it basically is is exactly what it sounds like it's prompts for various there's a bunch of them for various types of things so if you want like a like a a wealth prompt or a story prompt or some stuff like that like there's all these decks that you can go ahead and uh, and look into and uh, one thing that i didn't realize until i started looking at the website is that they're also affiliated with the tool that i use for my homebrew campaign for designing world anvil, world anvil which is a tool that i found kind of independently and i love it now they are not sponsors of the show
1: hashtag coded boys ttj
0: they are not uh, sponsors of the show, but we would love them to be if they wanted to be. Uh, and what I love most about World Anvil is just how every time you create anything—a uh, player, a, a, a city, a town, a map, an event, a timeline, anything like that—there are a ton of writing prompts that go along with that to go ahead and help flesh that out. You know, I, I found that very, very, very helpful. When I was um, designing the game world or fleshing out the game world, because I'd been designing it for a really long time, but when I was fleshing it out specifically so that players could start rolling dice on it, I found World Anvil really, really helpful for designing all that narrative stuff that I wanted to attach to it. So just some tools that you can use to help flesh out kind of your collaborative world building process.
1: The Land of 18 Seas was originally designed on World Anvil.
0: So uh, do you not use World Anvil? Have you switched to another world
1: designer or... I haven't really, but I think part of that is the speed at which I have to create for the world, because I do create things as players interact with things. I love World Anvil, and in a perfect world, (laughs) if I had two two weeks dedicated to one campaign between sessions, I would use it. I basically used World Anvil all the time, right up until we started doing the podcast, because... It came down to if I had time to write the thing, I was writing it pretty much in the hour to two hours before the game session. And so my time got really condensed, but I still maintain my my subscription to World Anvil because I do, when I get vacations, take the stuff that I've gotten and I saved on my Google Drive and I will add it back. I I basically back add to World Anvil because at some point five years from now, that's going to be the place where I direct people. It's not yeah. built out enough where I would say I'm going to start a new campaign next week. Here's my world. It's not that built out. It's not necessarily player friendly at this point, but I still do it. If I like have a new yeah. community or whatever, I will take the time to put it there.
0: Yeah, no, I, I know exactly what you mean. I mean, with my homebrew campaign, um, that I run locally here after the first session, just to go ahead and show you how collaborative, like my tables are, even outside of like, you, if you think what we did at Candle Keep was collaborative, like that's nothing like compared to like how my regular sessions go. After the first session, I had five pages of things that needed to be entered into World Anvil, things that they had found in a particular city or people that they had run into, like all the sort of stuff, five pages worth of notes that needed to be inputted in. Um, and it was probably, it was easily. 45 or 50 things that independently needed to be put in there. You know, it's the running joke at my table was always that, you know, there was no guild system in my world until one of the players said that he was a member of a particular guild. Now all of a sudden there's seven guilds and the political interaction between them all and all that sort of stuff. So it's like, it it really, it really kind of spirals out of control because that's just kind of the way that I operate. (laughs) But, but yeah, world, world anvil, fantastic tool.
1: I mean, quite honestly, I'm running two full campaigns that operate bi-weekly. I am operating a series of one-shots that I play quarterly in that same game world. I'm in the process of designing another series of one-shots for that same game, game world that I'll be running in the future. That may be for a Patreon subscribers. Little hint and a not. Actually, that will be. It's not even a maybe. That's, that's a lot. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. There's a lot going on all the time. And so that plus a nine to five in a family, tough.
4: (laughs) Yeah. No, time gets short.
1: It absolutely does. So
0: Let's let's try to go ahead and and put a put a, a cap on this here. So I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a little bit here. What are you looking forward to like from the next one? Like, what's the kind of thing that you would like to see happen
4: with it? So from the player perspective, I mean, I've run enough games and I've done enough public speaking, and I'm a writer and storyteller at heart. No matter what I do, there weren't a whole lot of nerves for me. I'm gonna be honest. I'm one of those people cool. that does well with the collaborative world building. Like, I don't know if I was if I want to say I was made for it, but like it fits my current role-playing style. It may not have much as much when I was younger, but now it very much does. And it's almost like, wow, this is kind of like what I've been missing. So it's really nice to have. (laughs) And I'm I'm really looking forward to exploring that more as a player, as I play, whether it's in, if Sprocket gets to revisit the actual play or the potential new actual play at some point, or in one of the other fantastic games that we sit down to do uh, play tests or actual plays of like against the dark master of the, or the real thing. I just look forward to sitting down at a table with fantastic people and telling a story together and not yeah. knowing exactly how it's going to come out. And even knowing that the storyteller doesn't know exactly how it's going to come out yeah. kind of makes it more exciting.
0: Absolutely, Um,
4: it does. And the caliber of people that I've been playing with when I've been in these situations has also honestly been a huge benefit in terms of my overall experience. Because, I mean, if you're sitting around with a a group of exceptional role players and you hit a collaborative world building section and they're all people who can go off the cuff without feeling too on the spot, it can be so much fun and evolve into all kinds of interesting scenes or hilarity or character or plot development. As a storyteller... mad shout out to mike from 19 hits the dragon for
0: the work in particular that we've been doing on the real thing yeah um, the way that the synergy in that group of people has been <sighs> amazing
4: bringing mike from 19 hits the dragon and steve from dads with nerdy ambitions in for the aliens actually that we just did i mean the synergy was there too it was it yeah. was really awesome almost from the word go just the way that we all easiest
0: game i've ever i've ever i've ever ran it was absolutely yeah Yeah. i just
4: Um, i want
1: to bridge off that for a brief second because a very similar experience to finally getting to throw dice with danilo what we did against the dark master very similar in that we have this amazing blessing the people that we've been collaborating with from the different shows are Gaming on a level that we've all been looking for for years. The players that have, that have joined us, become patrons and joined us in our actual play that we have on the channel are gaming again at a level we've been looking for for years. Me personally, and I know this is a question you asked for Glenn, but I just have to jump in and answer the question. I'm chasing a very specific dragon fisben month and that dragon is. Those specific role-playing scenes. I'm chasing that scene, Larone talking about the the Gators. I'm chasing oh. that scene, Larone crying because his his best friend is gone and now he's got to watch the captain go. I'm yeah. chasing that scene. You know, I'm I'm not going to give away the spoiler for the real thing, but there's a couple scenes in the real thing that I'm literally chasing. But I, I as a role player. I'm chasing things that are coming from these collaborative world building sessions. Kes talking about the were ravens, and and she handed that one off. I believe I came second on that one and I talked about the love story and I, or like whatever her story was, I took it to a a tragic love story piece or what have you. I'm chasing those moments. I live for those moments. And that is feeding this inner child who grew up with a very close friend who has gone on to be a a very popular actor on, on stage and such. But I watched him go through all of his acting classes. I've got a child who's doing acting classes in high school now, and I see all the notes and the acting prompts, and I'm literally following those acting prompts and bringing them to my game table because it is the thing I never had the personal courage to do. I never got on stage when I was in high school. I was too afraid. I had too much stage fright to do that. I could do it at a role-playing table with Glenn and with other and and Marty and other close friends but I could not do it on stage. I am now getting to do that through this game and I'm loving it. I that is the particular chromatic gem and metallic dragon I am chasing. <laughs>
4: From the storyteller's perspective, I'm looking forward to trying to bring the collaborative role-playing ideas that I'm learning so much more about as a player to my players and figuring out ways to use it at my table. You know, I'm one of the people that will definitely be looking at your pet, your folio of tables because I'm curious. I know that they exist and we've talked about them. You've shown me one, but, you know, seeing a group (laughs) of them together, I'm I'm very curious. I think it'll be a good time.
0: I've got the the table of contents done, and I've got, I have to write three or four of them remaining, but I will tell you what's going to be in there. So the role tables that I'm including are your players discover an abandoned village, your players have just had a hard battle, your players are about to enter a hard battle, your players are around a campfire. Your players all get childhood memories. This actually, that came from the last keep. Your characters are traveling through a desert. Uh, your characters are on a long voyage. Your characters are about to meet with nobility for the first time. Your characters are on a mountain path. Your characters are entering a new city for the first time. Your characters are on a futuristic space voyage. That's the one that we use for aliens. And your characters are on a fantastic space voyage. So that's one that's specific for Spelljammer. So
4: Nice.
1: I'm looking forward to those.
0: Lee, Winnika, how about you?
1: So I answered my player perspective one uh, and when I was chasing. As a storyteller, I'm looking forward to taking things beyond the subtle and beyond the tiers, and beyond the background. So like I have this framework. What I'm really looking forward to is to grabbing these tables and using them and fitting them into the actual individual sessions. My campaigns are ongoing, so they're not set up as adventures. So that should give a lot more room for this to breathe. So I'm really looking forward to that. But even for my one-shot campaigns, the one I have, the one I'm building, or the two I'm building i'm looking forward to kind of using these to augment the adventure so like to give something beyond to make these one shots seem like a lot more than just okay i opened up a pre-printed module and i went from it like i don't want my games to be even if i've prepared them as a single adventure to sound like it was a pre-printed pamphlet that's their best use and so I'm really looking forward to taking the tables and integrating. So, like, I already have my campaign frameworks that are designed around this this concept. I think it will only make what I do richer to add this the the specific elements in in individual sessions.
0: Yeah, because that—that's what they're designed to do, right? Storytellers out there, don't don't. I don't want to lead you all astray, right? This is going to increase your workload in the moment a little bit, because using the role tables is one thing, and that's going to help spawn the role play. Your job as a storyteller is twofold when you use them: one, to go ahead and make sure that you don't forget the things that your players have now exposed themselves to and, and opened up with and shared right don't forget them make sure you use them but it's also if we think about the situation with sprocket at the campfire after Kess had told the story about the werewolf right what made that magical it, in my perspective was not just that all five of you or all six of you had this kind of glommed onto the, sh- the same story it was mm-hmm. that as a storyteller, I made sure to take that moment, the exact moment that Sprocket convinced, I think it was Illidaz, who was not wearing his armor, to actually look over the fence in the bush and see if there was a werebear there. Because Sprocket was so scared. It was either Simeon or Illidaz. I forget who you you Mm -hmm. pestered enough to go ahead and actually look, right? Because here's the conceit. The rats weren't there until somebody looked for them. Right, of course. Uh, up until Up until that point, I mean, they had been surrounding you from a dip, from a total other side of the map. And while this is going on, you no, know, I've got them hidden on the storyteller layer of, of owlbear. Owl Bear, and I'm like, okay, well, if they're looking over there for them, guess what? Now they're in the bushes right behind them. That's actually what Sprocket is seeing, right? And so, storytellers don't don't be under any illusions. Collaborative world building in the moment that is happening is going to put you on your toes. The magic happens when you weave together the threads that your players are giving you don't just leave them hanging because otherwise that's not going to be memorable. You got to weave them in. You got to make them real. Make them a thing. And that that's your job as the storyteller in, in this, right? You're already ceding control of the of the narrative to your players. Make it worth their effort to go ahead and and do that. Make sure
1: that you reward them for that. Immersion is a two-way street. You want Absolutely. your players to yep. be immersed in the world and and you're using collaborative world building to do that. Well, guess what? While you're doing that, you have to be immersed as well, and you have to follow that. The art of improv is yes, and it's the handoff. Exactly, exactly, exactly. That handoff also comes back to the storyteller, and if you don't do your part of that, everything stops. And whatever whatever game you were about to get stops there, as opposed to being amplified into something that's truly memorable or legendary. (laughs)
0: we hope that you enjoyed this episode obviously something that we've been talking about a lot uh in the show notes for today's episode there's going to be a ton of links other times that we have talked about it we talked about it on the magic items episode when we had snapping dragon Tavern on with him. We talked about obviously in the the Patreon IPs that we've been doing a bunch of other situations has come up. So check the show notes. There's a bunch of other material about when we've talked about collaborative world building and how we use it. But more than anything else, you know, we're gonna we're gonna toss it right out there to to our listeners. But we want to hear from you on this one too. Like, how are you using collaborative world building? What do you like about collaborative world building? What don't you like about collaborative world building? Let's uh, let's let's get some conversation started about how makes its way to your table. Or, or how this makes it into the tables that you're playing at. So, All right, gentlemen, thank you very much. I appreciate uh, you taking your time out as always to go ahead and uh, talk about this. Uh, and everybody out there listening, hope that you enjoyed the episode. We certainly have enjoyed uh, bringing it to you. We're going to have a bunch of end-of-year content coming up here. We have our, our infamous end-of-year uh, bloopers episode coming up here soon. That is always a hoot. So uh, it's, it certainly was last year. And uh, now with a full year of content and three hosts... Lots of bloopers. I don't think I've had to use the, the 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 bleeping slide whistle as much in a particular in one episode than I have with this one there's a There's a lot of bleeping slide whistle Here's a shocker for everybody out there. Glenn and I have a filthy sense of humor, and so the stuff that doesn't make it on the radio really, really funny, not fit for people <laughs> so that's yeah, uh, and some yeah. of it
4: might not even be fit for bloopers.
0: this has been an absolutely killer. 2021 for the three of us we will have at the point that you're listening to this we will have just crossed our one year anniversary great stuff coming for our second year all that to go ahead and say hope you all have a happy holidays and all that stuff hope you had a happy thanksgiving so as always stay tuned thank you for joining us this has been tabletop journeys we would love to hear your feedback on our show today. You can join us at www.ttjourneys.com, where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast.
2: And make sure you join our growing online community. You can follow us on Twitter at TT Journeys and join us on Facebook just by searching Tabletop Journeys there. You can also reach us by email at podcast at ttjourneys.com. And if you want to catch early access to our episodes and some of the other benefits we have coming down the pipeline, you can also support our production at patreon.com slash ttjourneys. If you're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, Audible, or any
1: other podcast platform, we would really appreciate if you would like and subscribe to the podcast. Full episodes come out every week on Saturdays and every Wednesdays. We'll feature our SideQuest series, where we talk about pretty much anything tabletop oriented. Thank you all so much for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And in the words of another traveler on our path, we bid you shade and sweet water.